Stay tuned for the Heartland Labor Forum, radio that talks back to the boss. a weekly show of news, information, and commentary by and for the working people of Kansas City. This show is produced by a team of volunteers from a broad range of workplaces and unions. The views expressed on the Heartland Labor Forum are ours and not necessarily those of KKFI or any unions involved. And welcome to the Heartland Labor Forum. Tonight's show is being underwritten by the Kansas City Federation of Teachers and School Personnel, and the Operative Plasters and Cement Masons Local 518. The KCFT SRP, that's the teachers, represents the classified and certified members of the Kansas City Public Schools. KCFT SRP members believe that strong schools mean strong communities. We work hard every day to give KC kids the support they need and the quality education they deserve. And we at Local 518 of the Operative Plasterers and Cement Masons stand for all workers' rights and encourage everyone to buy union-made products and use union signatory contractors. On tonight's show, former Honduras President Juan Orlando Hernandez goes on trial this month in New York for drug trafficking. Honduran workers face repression, corruption, and forced migration during his reign will ask whether the U.S. and Canada should be held accountable for supporting his regime. Then, we'll talk to journalist Hamilton Nolan about his new book, The Hammer, Power, Inequality, and the Struggle, Struggle for the Soul of Labor. He thinks organized labor could change the economic and social course of American life, but it needs to get out of its own way. In the news, first off, guns, and then Flight attendants want to raise. Our feature at the end of the show is Know Your Rights with Michael Amash. It's the basics of the Fair Labor Standards Act. And now for the news. This is the news from our side, February 15th, 2024. And we'll start the news with the protest of the senseless killing of Lisa Lopez Galvan, a KKFI programmer of the Tuesday night show Taste of Tejano, which has been a fixture of KKFI since the 1990s. Lisa was invited to join the second generation of hosts for the show in 2022 and bring her love of her culture and music to our listeners, along with co-hosts Tommy Andrade and Monica Frias. So many people in the community knew Lisa and her family and must be asking how such cursed things happen that, according to reports, 
two underage children and one adult can be so heavily armed that they can shoot 23 people in just a few seconds. The Heartland Labor Forum has been told by our union leaders for years that the subject of gun control is an untouchable topic among union members. There are too many who are members of the NRA, too many hunters, too many Second Amendment supporters. It would be too divisive to even broach the subject, so we don't discuss it here on our show. Well, not today. Every day, every week, we hear about mass murders, we hear about crazed racists toting AR-15s, mentally ill teens who were given a rifle for their birthday, and we think, well, that hasn't happened here, not in our schools or our shopping centers. Somehow, praise God, we're immune. Well, it's happened here, ruining a day when the whole community came together to celebrate the Chiefs' victory in the Super Bowl and our KC pride. But Missouri should be ashamed. This state has the weakest of, uh, or some of the weakest gun laws in the country. Our governor and legislators refuse to pass sensible gun regulations that would keep AR-15s and other rapid-firing death machines out of the hands of civilians, that would do background checks on gun purchasers, to take guns away from domestic violence perpetrators, and a whole series of laws to protect Lisa, the Lisa Lopez Galvans and the dozen children who were shot yesterday, and the rest of us who will think twice about going the next time there's a parade. Why don't elected officials protect us instead of always protecting their own political hides against punishment from the NRA or their party that thinks that protection of mass murderers and future mass murderers is good politics? Rest in peace, Lisa Lopez Galvan. KKFI will miss you. As for the rest of us, there's something you can do about it. In the last few years, state legislators in both Kansas and Missouri have tried to save money by cutting pension programs. Missouri stuck university employees with a two-tier system which leaves the younger generation with substandard retirement. Kansas performed surgery on the Kansas Public Employees Retirement System, or CAPERS program, which, according to a new audit written by About in the Reflector, stuck employees hired since 2015 with higher worker contribution requirements, a longer vesting period, and lower financial rewards than plans in comparable states. The audit surveyed 1,300 current and former Kansas public employees and found that people enrolled in what is called CAPERS 3 were more likely to leave their job than participants in previous programs. Cade Graber, an auditor with the Legislative Division of Post Audit, said, CAPERS 3 generally gives employees less flexibility, requires them to share some financial risk, and provides lower benefits than other plans evaluated. CAPERS 3 has higher employee contribution rates, a longer vesting period, and a longer retirement requirement than most other plans we have evaluated. On Tuesday, flight attendants from United, American, Southwest, Alaska, and other <laughs> airlines were out picketing in dozens of airports around the country. They are demanding higher wages and better working conditions. They are members of the Association of Flight Attendants, CWA. 
The unions that were picketing represent 100,000 flight attendants. They look at the contract settlements of pilots, auto workers, Hollywood actors, and writers, and UPS, and say, what about us? Sarah Nelson, AFA president, told CNBC, We have been in a period of austerity for 20 years, and it's time the industry paid up. Most flight attendants haven't had a raise since before COVID when their contract negotiations were suspended. CNBC reports that flight attendants make an average of about 67000 a year, according to the Labor Department, though pay can range from around 38000 at the bottom 10th percentile to about 97000 at the top. Julie Hendrick of the Association of Professional Flight Attendants, which represents American Airlines workers, said, Inflation has been the most difficult for our new hires. We want American to come to the table and recognize what we've done to return this airline to profitability. Finally, this comes from the Labor Beacon, which reports that in January, the Jackson County Legislature passed a comprehensive and pro-worker ordinance on a 9-0 vote, mandating standards that county must follow in awarding contracts. It's called responsible bidder language. So any project put out to bid that the country undertakes, the county undertakes, must stipulate a one-to-one journeyman to apprentice ratio, have employer-provided health care benefits for workers, a real apprentice program, prevailing wages, improved standard, safety standards, drug testing, and the requirement to keep records on all this and more. This applies to any project worth more than 75000 Awarding a contract to the lowest bidder may save money, but often if the project is done on the cheap, the county will end up perpetuating bad working conditions and jobs that are poorly done. The job doesn't have to be union, but it should approximate union working conditions. Tonight's news was read by Judy Ansel, Michael Savoie, Stephen Hill, and I'm Tom Gebkin. Pasajero Juan Orlando Hernández, con destino a la ciudad de Nueva York, favor de abordar por la puerta número 2. Guanchi, guanchi, guanchi. Wanchi Vapar Nueva York. Good evening. I'm your host, Christina Disming, and on tonight's show, we will be discussing the corrupt policies of former Honduran President Juan Orlando Hernandez, who is currently on trial in New York City for drug trafficking. During his eight year reign, Honduran workers faced repression, corruption, and ultimately, many faced a forced migration from their homes. Honduras was marred with corruption scandals and abuses from the military and police. Even though Hernandez was elected in 2013, since 2009, U.S. and Canada has legitimized three contested elections in Honduras. In 2009, democratically elected president, 
Manuel Zelaya, was ousted in a coup backed by the United States and Canada. Just five months afterwards, new elections were held, and the U.S. and Canada ignored warnings by Congress and the Organization of American States of human rights abuses centered around the coup and the upcoming election. The same concerns will be brought up again when Hernandez was elected in 2013 and once again in the highly contested and challenged 2017 elections. Each time, U.S. and Canada governments and corporations ignored warnings heeded by thousands of experts and individuals impacted by the decline in the state of Honduras. We will be talking to Karen Spring, who is a co-coordinator of the Honduras Solidarity Network and producer of the Honduras Now podcast. She currently lives in Tegucigalpa, the capital of Honduras. I know Karen through my work uh, with the Cross-Border Network, and I was pretty lucky back in 2019 to go on a delegation that she um, ran to learn about these very issues. So Karen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Christina. It's great to be here. Oh, well, first thing, at the very, right before um, this segment, we played a song, Ruanchi Vapa Nueva York. Could you explain that song a little bit, the significance of that song a little bit to our audience? Sure. Um, well, that song was very, very popular in Honduras in the last few years that uh, former President Juan Orlando Hernandez was in power because it was a way that the Honduran artists that created it were sort of mocking him. They called him Juanchi, which is his a nickname that they refer to him as, um, and that he was going to go to New York as and he was going to be extradited to face drug trafficking charges in the U.S. And so they would play that song um, as a way to mock him, to say, you're next and there's no way you can avoid it. So it, it, it automatically will make Hondurans excited just to hear it because it, it was their way of resisting against uh, him as he was president. It looks like it came true. I do love the creative atmosphere that comes about, especially with songwriters um, in times of either resistance, whether it's labor or human rights. But uh, so now the former narco dictator Juan Orlando Hernandez is facing trials for drug trafficking and weapons violations in New York City. So he went from being the president of Honduras to a jail sale. Explain how that happened and why you are in New York City right now. Sure. So he was, Juan Orlando Hernandez was voted out of office at the end of 2021. And a new president took power in Honduras in early 2022. And the day that the new president took power, the U.S. And so that's one of the reasons he went from being the U.S.'s guy in, Hondur in Honduras to being extradited. Because I think the United States just couldn't handle the embarrassment uh, of him anymore. And just it was too risky for them to continue to stand by their democratic, quote unquote, ally in Honduras. I just want to mention, too, it's not just because of the U.S. that he's here in New York facing trial. It's also because of the years and years of the Honduran resistance of the labor movement in Honduras, uh, basically mobilizing, organizing, and contributing to all of the things that basically led him to be such an embarrassment to uh, the United States as their ally. Basically, he became a liability. And so we, I talked about, and I know you've mentioned before, uh, the United States and Canada um, playing a big part in the, playing a big part in this. So, what role did U.S. and Canada play in? the fraudulent elections that happened in uh, 2009, 2013, and 2017? So, I mean, like you said, these were three sets of elections. And in all of the elections, 
um, the United States and Canada uh, ignored very, very clear warning signs that things were not okay, both leading up to the elections during each of those three elections and after the elections. So, for example, the 2009 elections occurred five months after the military decided to overthrow a Democratic president. And there was a huge human rights crisis in the country. In 2013, there were several dozen uh, candidates that were running in the election six months leading up to it that were murdered um, because of their uh, involvement in the elections. And then in 2017, there was just a huge outcry following the elections as well to say that there was fraud. The computer system crashed when it came back on. Juan Orlando Hernandez was winning, even though before it crashed, he was losing. And so the United States ignored and Canada ignored very clear warning signs, both human rights crises, migration crises. They ignored very clear signs from solidarity organizations such as the cross-border network based there in Kansas City, the Honduras Solidarity Network else uh, from around the US and Canada that were saying, stop, like we need to stop supporting this dictator. He's drug trafficking, he's committing human rights abuses, and we were ignored. And But we were also joined by voices from the US Congress, from the Canadian Parliament saying, whoa, we need to stop uh, spending money on him, sending the military and police aid. And again, we were ignored. So that was our role in maintaining Juan Orlando Hernandez as he was drug trafficking in power in Honduras. For those of you just joining us right now, we're speaking with Karen Spring uh, about what's happening right now with the former president, Juan Orlando Hernandez, going on trial for drug trafficking in New York City. So it's when it comes with the United States, definitely there's things that can be benefited from from upholding a uh, dictator uh, such as well as I as I view him as a dictator of Juan Orlando Hernandez. Um, how do U.S. and Canadian businesses and interests benefit from the corrupt regimes of not just Hernandez but also Porfirio Lobo, the um, former president as well? And how do these interests increase the deterioration of labor and workers' rights throughout Honduras? So following the 2009 coup, which I think it's important to say that the U.S. and Canada supported that coup, one of the reasons that the United States was so close to the two presidents that took power following that, the longest one after the coup was Juan Orlando Hernandez, who was in power for two terms, so eight years total, is that they were very, they created very favorable labor conditions or very favorable conditions in Honduras for big business. And they created conditions for foreign companies like sweatshop companies, tourism companies, manufacturing companies um, uh, across the board to basically uh, come and uh, invest in Honduras. And they actually called, had this big event following the coup called it Honduras is open for business, trying to attract all of these foreign companies. And one of the things that he did, that Juan Orlando Hernandez did as he was president of Congress after the coup, is they passed a temporary labor law that basically was a violation of the Honduran labor code in itself. And it allowed companies, particularly foreign companies with big staff or, or with, that provided like a lot of jobs, to basically not uh, pay the workers what they would make if they were permanent workers. So it allowed them to hire people for three months at a time with no benefits, no job security. And they often would hire people and then they'd work for three months and then they would fire them and then rehire them just to avoid having to pay the correct wages, pay them benefits, give them job security, et cetera. 
So this is one of the reasons that the United States and Canada were so close to Juan Orlando Hernandez was because he really, it, to build his relationship and to keep his trusting collaborative relationship with um, the U.S. and Canadian governments is that he allowed a lot of foreign companies, a lot of them from the U.S. and Canada, to basically do what they want. And a temporary labor law is a really good example of that. It was profitable for foreign companies to set up shop in Honduras because it meant cheap labor. And for our audience right now, um, in a couple of weeks, we will be doing a show on this very topic that Karen is talking about, um, basically saying that Honduras is open for foreign companies. We will be talking about ZAs, Zones for um, Economic Development. We will be um, discussing part of a show on those. So do stay tuned. Um, be looking for that future show that we will be expanding more on that specific topic. So Karen, can you also um, talk a little bit about um, some resistance, so some solidarity and labor resistance to these, um, because Honduras, they did not just sit around or anything. People organized, people formed solidarity coalitions to fight back against these blatant worker violations. So the solidarity movement, uh, well, I mean, I think it's really important to recognize that the Honduran um, labor movement, the Honduran social movement, they were constantly in resistance uh, to what was going on. And I think that's probably one of the most amazing things about Juan Orlando Hernandez being up here in New York um, in prison currently waiting trial that's set to start next week is, is that uh, it's in part, although he's not being tried in Honduras where he should be being tried um, because, you know, drug trafficking was one of his many crimes that he committed. Um, uh, one of the, the things that is, is really telling of that is just the incredible resistance of the Honduran people and the labor movements over so many years to get him out of power um, and to denounce these things, these abuses that he was involved in. And so even though he should be tried in his own country in the U.S. that supported him for so long are now trying him, um, which is kind of very uh, unfair and ironic because they put him in power. They took him out of power. And now they're calling him a drug trafficker. Um, you know, it's a partial, it's a victory too for the Honduran people. And I think that needs to be recognized as well, as well as for the solidarity movement that stood beside and accompanied the Honduran resistance for so many years as they resisted the coup, resisted the fraudulent elections and all the violations that were occurring. Even though there's so much to go, there's so much payoff from how many people work together and show moments of solidarity working. And you just see these coalitions of different organizations working together. And finally, this is feel like it's a step in the right direction. But I know there's so much more to be done. And so Hernandez, he's out. And Hondurans voted in Xiomasa Castro as the new president. However, we know that problems caused by foreign-backed dictators do not vanish overnight. It takes a while. It takes a while to get them out, and then it takes a long time to undo everything that they messed up. So, what's going? What ongoing issues does the current administration and Honduras face, and what role is the U.S. and Canada playing right now? So I think it's really clear that, I mean, if once you if you if you take out the head of a drug cartel, the whole body of the drug cartel remains. And so that's one of the major problems that we're seeing in Honduras, like the public institutions, um, the state itself and the state structures are still very much infiltrated by people that are politically loyal to that uh, person. And then you still have organized criminal groups in the police and military that were both involved in trafficking drugs they're still active and they're still creating a crisis in the country. Um, and so one of the things, one of the major issues we're facing is, is that now that Juan Orlando Hernandez is out of power, the new president is trying to put forward 
progressive reforms. And some of these reforms are things that Honduran people have been calling for for so long. Like one of, I talked about the temporary labor law just a couple of minutes ago. That's one of the things that this new government has overturned. They eliminated it. But as they're eliminating the temporary labor law and they're trying to implement and sort of like roll back all of these really uh, problematic laws that were put in place by Juan Orlando Hernandez after the coup, um, they're getting significant resistance um, not from Hondurans, but from the U.S. government that is not in favor of these progressive reforms, even though the U.S. government is claiming that they're trying to stop migration to the United States. One of the things that a lot of migrants that are coming to the U.S. and Mexico border will say is, is that there is no employment in my country. And if there is good, if there is employment, then they're not following the labor law. They're not uh, fulfilling the law and they're not defending workers. And so um, as the new president is trying to say, let's get rid of this law that, that basically violates the labor code, let's get foreign companies to actually hire Honduran workers, give them proper salaries, give them benefits, let them collectively or uh, negotiate collective agreements. Um, the U.S. Embassy is saying, no, 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 we don't want this. This is not OK. And they try to undermine the new government. That's just one example. And there's other like, you know, laws that are things that are very legitimate to ask, like tax reform, so that, you know, you tax the rich uh, more that have gotten significant tax benefits, something that, you know, Biden, I think, was even trying to do in the U.S. The United States is opposed to it. They don't want the rich to be taxed because they know that the foreign companies that are from the U.S. and other parts of the world will not uh, benefit from these laws. And so it's one of the biggest challenges is the constant U.S. intervention to stop the slightest reforms that for once put the Honduran people first and try and address some of these reasons why Hondurans are fleeing their country and why they're forced to migrate to the U.S. and Mexico. And it seems like if anyone has studied U.S. foreign policy, this seems like a wash and repeat um, that we've seen again and again, not just in Honduras, but throughout the world, the place that the U.S. gets involved with, especially the same uh, labor stories and labor struggles that we hear again and again. And so what next? So right now, Juan Orlando Hernandez is on trial in New York City. What things are, what's next? What's going to be, what are the next steps to, uh, for either for him or for Honduras or undoing what he did throughout the country? So one of the next steps is, I think for U.S. US uh, residents and for Canadian residents, one of the next steps is, is, is that we need to hold our governments responsible for their behavior in what happened in Honduras and what continues to happen. And so one of the reasons I'm sitting here in New York um, is because the Honduras Solidarity Network is launching a campaign that coincides with this trial against our former Democratic ally in Honduras that drug trafficked for many years. And we are putting the U.S. and Canada on trial. And what does that mean exactly? What it means is, is that we are calling for accountability here in the United States and in Canada to say we need to know and understand our role in this, in supporting this dictator and funding the police and military that were helping him traffic drugs for so many years. We're calling for the declassification of documents that outline the support that Canada and the U.S. gave to Honduras from the 2009 coup up until Juan Orlando Hernandez left power. We're asking for investigations in Congress and in the Canadian Parliament about what our role was. What did we know? 
what, like, what were the warning signs, why we ignored the warning signs, and how do we change our public policy so that we stop supporting drug traffickers in Honduras, for example, or human rights violations in other parts of the world, etc. And so I'm sitting here in New York, and I'm the representative of the campaign. And so we're trying to make the links. As Juan Orlando Nunes is going to trial, we are saying, no, we need to put ourselves on trial. And what can we learn from this? And how do we make this stop? And so we have this campaign, which people can follow and learn more about at uh, Honduras Now. Org, which is a website where we're posting all of the actions that people can participate in and where they can learn more about the campaign and about the regular updates that we're putting out. I just wanted to mention one more thing, which is really um, uh, something that's being discussed very extensively in this trial right now, although the U.S. media is not talking about it, is that right now the, the actors in this trial are battling classified information. Ho wants to use classified information in the trial, and the U.S. government is saying, no, 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 we don't want classified information to come out because they are scared, the U.S. government is scared, that what will be revealed is how close the United States was allied with a drug trafficker for so many years that put thousands and thousands of kilos of cocaine into the United States while the United States was saying they were trying to address migration and while they were leading the war on drugs in Latin America. So that is what we're doing here. Stay tuned. The trial date might get changed. The campaign will continue. And I encourage people to get involved at HondurasNow.org. All right. Thank you so much for joining us, Karen. Thank you so much for having me, Christina. And that was Karen Spring talking about the current ongoing trial of former Honduran President Juan Orlando Hernandez. I'm your host, Christina Disming, and stay tuned for the second half of our show. Coming up Thursday, February 15th at 7 p.m. on the People Power Hour brought to you by KC Tenants, we will continue talking about the Tenant Right to Counsel program. The Right to Counsel program provides legal counsel to Kansas City tenants facing eviction. Our guest will be Brian Larios, UMKC School of Law adjunct clinical professor and managing attorney for the Tenant Assistance Initiative. Do not go to eviction court without an attorney. You will lose. Tune in to the People Power Hour brought to you by Casey Tenants on February 15th at 7 p.m. Do you love community radio and believe in KKFI's mission? Would you like to serve your community by helping lead KKFI into the future? KKFI is always looking for leaders from the Kansas City community to join and help our board of directors. Express your interest by applying to be a volunteer at kkfi.org volunteer. Together, we can shape the future of Kansas City Community Radio.
That was the classic protest song, If I Had a Hammer, though probably a version that you haven't heard before. The song was written, of course, by Pete Seeger and Lee Hayes and made famous by Peter, Paul, and Mary. The version we just heard was performed by Ross McManus and the Joe Loss Orchestra on the BBC's Royal Variety Show in 1963. The name Ross McManus might not ring a bell, but you've probably heard of his musician son, Declan McManus, who goes by the stage name Elvis Costello. I'm Mark Galis. It's been well documented on this program that the labor movement is in the midst of a renaissance, with organizers making good trouble around the country. But despite the recent organizing success stories, union density continues to flatline or decline. The energy and tactics of the grassroots organizers at Starbucks and Trader Joe's and Amazon stand in stark contrast to old guard entities such as the AFL-CIO. How can the labor movement get out of its own way and be more successful? Labor journalist Hamilton Nolan has some ideas about that. He's written his first book called The Hammer, Power, Inequality, and the Struggle for the Soul of Labor, published by Hachette Books and out this week. He joins us now to discuss his book. Hamilton, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So why this book and why now? Well, I wanted to write this book um, because I've been a full-time labor reporter for a number of years, uh, all the way through the pandemic, witnessed kind of what the pandemic did to America's workers and the various crises that it created for a lot of working people, and also um, the opportunities that it created for organized labor, you know, the, the level of enthusiasm that it created uh, for organizing and for unions across the country. And so with this book, I, I kind of tried to answer the question of whether organized labor is going to be able to seize the moment of opportunity that's in front of us and turn around the decline that's been going on for uh, more than half a century now um, and save America and uh, why they haven't been able to do that already also. You write that unions have largely stopped trying. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, as you know, and your listeners probably know, um, unions have been in decline since the mid 20th century. It used to be one in three American workers had a union. Now it's down to one in 10. And that decline has been pretty steady um, for for uh, going on three generations now. And of course, a lot of that is due to union busting. It's due to hostile labor law. It's due to all the you know corporate power. It's due to all the familiar boogeymen that we talk about as being enemies of organized labor. Um, but it's also due to some extent to the fact that unions themselves have not really thrown them into the task of trying to organize at the scale that we need to. And of course, there are bright spots all over the labor movement. You can talk about good things that are happening at all at all times. But when you pull back and look at the big picture, um, still organized labor in America has not really woken up to the fact that we need to organize at the scale of millions of workers or else we're really in an existential crisis. Sarah Nelson is a major figure throughout your book. Uh, who is she and why is she important to the labor movement now and possibly in the future? So Sarah Nelson is the uh, head of the Association of Flight Attendants, which is the main uh, union of flight attendants in America, part of CWA. It's about 50,000 member union. Um, she is a very kind of fiery and radical, progressive labor leader. You know, I encourage anyone who hasn't ever seen her speak to look up some of her speeches on YouTube. A great speaker. And she's she is a labor a leader who kind of 
grabbed my attention when I first began reporting on her in the sense that she was one of the first people that I met um, who was actually running a union who seemed to recognize the problems and think about them in the same way that I do. And so uh, throughout the book, I kind of follow her, um, her sort of back and forth struggle about whether and how to become a leader um, in the in the labor movement at large. Um, and she is, you know, she's very engaged in a lot of battles, always in the aviation industry. Right now, the union is trying to organize 25,000 flight attendants at Delta, which I think is the biggest private sector organizing campaign in America right now. Um, she's very, very tied into Washington and politics. So um, I just think she is sort of the, the type of labor leader who can elevate the labor movement into the national conversation um, in a way that we don't see from too many other union leaders. Some folks were surprised that she did not run for AFL-CIO president last time around against Liz Schuler, And I got the sense from your book and also from some reporting at the time that she felt that the role was uh, maybe maybe too limiting for what she wanted to do because of the bureaucracy of the AFL-CIO. Is that fair? That's certainly fair. And that's certainly part of it. You know, as I as I write about in my book, there were a lot of kind of logistical challenges um, that rose up in front of her, some health challenges. The pandemic was a challenge. A lot of things kind of conspired to make it difficult for her to um, pull off the run that she was thinking about, which would have been more of like a grassroots fueled run for the AFL-CIO presidency, which is not typically the way that that um, seat is contested. You know, it's it's very much more of a an inside an inside deal. Um, so a lot of things came together to prevent her from doing that. I think, but certainly one of them, um, as you say, was kind of like the question of is that the best place to to rally the labor movement from? You know, is that position the the best way to sort of stand up and grow the labor movement? And there's there's definitely some structural reasons why you might say the answer is no. One of my favorite quotes in the whole book is about the AFL-CIO convention and how you characterize the crowd as, quote, indistinguishable from the crowd at the Mid-Atlantic Insurance Industry Convention. A lot of middle-aged white guys in blazers and golf shirts with Southeast Regional District Council president stitched on a corner of the chest, end quote. That really sets quite an image, I have to say. In the same same vein, you write that the AFL-CIO is, quote, blah, end quote. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, the AFL-CIO, uh, it's funny because I always have a lot of hope for the AFL-CIO. And that is that I find is something that's not shared by a lot of people I know who work in the labor movement. A lot of people who are kind of the most... Um, committed and ideological people that I know inside the labor movement, if you start talking about the AFL-CIO, they'll be like, Psh, whatever, they're never going to do anything. They sort of assume that they're a bureaucracy, you know, but I've always felt that the AFL-CIO is this institution that already exists, that sits at the center of the labor movement, that has, you know, a lot of potential, much like unions themselves, right? We, we have a lot of potential in front of us. And so you can imagine an AFL-CIO that could really pull together big national unions in coordinated actions to take the kind of steps that we really need to turn around the labor movement. So I think the AFL-CIO is important 
But when when you compare that vision of what they could be doing with what they're actually doing, which is really not very much at all, just sort of litigating internal disputes and sort of being close to the Democratic Party, um, it's always it's always, you know, kind of a crushing disappointment. So I I I feel like uh, I may be the only, you know, labor writer in America who actually still believes that the AFL-CIO um, can be something bigger than what it is. But, you know, I do believe it. And maybe I write some critical things about him in this book, but maybe I'll inspire him a little bit, too. You were nice enough to join us back in July of 2022 to talk about the future of the AFL-CIO. And we talked about the CTO, the Center for Transformational Organizing, which was a plan to organize a million new union members in 10 years. And as you pointed out at the time, if you did the math, that guaranteed future decline in union membership. Uh, How is the CTO working out, if at all? <laughs> yeah, it's a great question. You know, that is so emblematic, I feel like, of kind of the, the failings of the AFLCO, which is they their big goal that they announced to organize a million new union members in a decade would actually keep unionicity declining. And so it's like sort of <laughs> the lack of vision is really embodied in that right there. And you know, it's a great question. What is the CTO doing? Um, I don't know, you know, and the fact that I don't know um, means probably that the answer is not much. I mean, they they came out with a budget of something like $12 million a year for this new center that was supposed to be funding um, new forms of organizing. And really, when you think about the scale of the organizing that we need to do, you could you could get in a room and spend $12 million in an afternoon. I mean, you could just point at four or five places and be like, we're going to divide it up, you know, Amazon and the gig economy and here, 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 and and boom, you could spend it. So it's the fact that uh, we're going on two years now and there haven't been a lot of big announcements about wins from that money um, makes me a little pessimistic about what the bureaucracy is doing with it. You have a chapter in your book about South Carolina, and you characterize it as the place where unions go to die. What makes South Carolina so anti-union? Yeah, I I wrote a chapter on South Carolina because it is the state with the lowest uh, union density in America. It is the it is the graveyard of unions, you know, and of course, you could probably look around the south and and point to a lot of those states that are that are all extremely hostile unions. But South Carolina is at the very, very bottom. I think, you know, union density is something like two percent in that state. Um, And so I wanted to know what what the labor movement looks like in a place like that, because if we are if we are going to resurrect unions in America, you know, those are the types of places where we have to be able to organize. If we can't organize in a state like South Carolina, we can't ever really say that the labor movement and its influence has been resurrected. So um, it's you know, it's it. South Carolina is similar to a lot of other southern states, but it's maybe more magnified in the hostility of the state government. The local governments, all levels of the state power structure, extremely anti-union, you know, and and by the way, we have Nikki Haley out here running around um, being presented as like the, you know, the reasonable Republican. But she, of course, was the governor of South Carolina and just talked very openly about not wanting any unions in the state. We're going to kick them out or 
you know, so it's just extremely hostile place to work in people's interests. And, and, you know, I did find some aspects of the labor movement in that state. There are some strong unions, particularly the longshoremen in Charleston um, that do some great things, you know, but, but I think it's important for all of us who care about the labor movement and elevating it to think about the most hostile case and how we can operate in that environment. And that's what South Carolina is. You document some success stories in your book. One was the CCPU, the Child Care Providers Union in California, a union that I had not really been familiar with. How, how did that union come to be and what can the labor movement learn from it? Yeah, it's a really great story that I felt like didn't really get a lot of attention, but it was a, a 20 year long campaign. So, um, you know, you had people who whose parents were active in this campaign and then they sort of retired and their children got active in this campaign. That's how long it went on, two decades. Um, it was it was a multi-union campaign. You know, it was um, AFSCME and SEIU working together, dividing up the state. They had to get a state law passed to allow collective bargaining for, for these child care providers who are people who take care of kids in their home. So they're essentially this very split up, atomized workforce, you know, very hard to organize, couldn't legally collectively bargain and the and, you know, divided between more than one union. So all these challenges that people might say you can't organize, you know, this is too much to ever organize. And yet they spent 20 years. They got the state law changed to allow collective bargaining. They successfully unionized this group of 40,000 child care providers throughout the entire state that are come from all over the world, speak many different languages. Um, and they went to the table and they bargained a contract with the state. And I think they may have even bargained a second contract with the state at this point. So it's like, it's sort of a great example of like the, the scale and the ambition and the stick-to-itiveness that it takes to pull off a large scale organize and drive and also proof that it can actually work. You also write about the culinary union in, in Las Vegas that has succeeded despite ongoing efforts by the casino industry to break it. You, you ask rhetorically whether it can be replicated in other places. Can it? I think yes, you know, and I think it's really one of the greatest um, opportunities for for labor power, particularly at the at citywide scales, at municipal scales, because what the culinary union did in Vegas was um, they organized the the most powerful industry in the city, which of course the casino industry, um, and throughout the state as well, but really concentrated in Vegas. And by doing that, and by really focusing on worker power first they achieved a lot of political power as well. You know, so I think that model of, that they embody, which is build worker power first, which will then give you political power, is something that the whole labor movement needs to coalesce around. And when you look at other cities around the country, any city that has a tourist economy, and I write about um, Unite Here's efforts to do this in New Orleans and Miami, and they do it all over the place. But like, if you take any city with a tourist economy and you organize um, the central parts of that tourist economy, meaning hotels, um, convention center, airport, you know, tourist attractions, and you get that labor power in those places, you then have a great deal of political power in that city, and you can even scale up to the state. And you can do that in red states just as easily as in blue states. So it's a, it's a very promising kind of model for building political power, even in red states, through labor power, and I, I hope that um, people read that and think about that as something that could be replicated all over the place. 
You write about a Nabisco workers strike in Portland, the bakery, confectionery, tobacco workers, and grain millers, local 364, BCTGM. It's a mouthful. Um, and, and what I got out of the strike, well, a couple things. One was uh, that it's wise to bring, if you're going to help people on the picket line, bring something other than donuts, right? <laughs> <laughs> people can only eat so many right. donuts. <laughs> get sick of donuts, yes. Yes. Some fruit. Yeah, exactly. Yes. <laughs> Got to keep them healthy. Um, but the other was that the, the, the strike went on and it seemed that what they got out of it was basically just maintaining the status quo. And so, you know, how, how can strikes be used to actually allow unions to get ahead? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a good question, you know, and and um, that strike is is sort of an example of like, this job that is a factory job, a blue collar job, the kind of job that generations ago you could think of as a middle class job. And of course, today it's very rare to find those, you know, middle class jobs that are really blue collar factory jobs. And here's one where they have maintained it as a middle class job by a whole lot of, of, of fighting, you know, through this union. And so, yeah, that strike that they had to do, which was a nationwide Nabisco strike, um, I write about it in Portland, but it was, it was all over the country against a huge um, international food conglomerate that wants to break the union, you know, and they did. They had the strike just to really hang on to, and not even everything they have, but to hang on to most of what they had. And, um, and, in some industries, that's going to be the case. I mean, it's I think that that I don't want to write fairy tales. You know, um, a, a lot of a lot of fights are hard. And this is a case where they had to go to the wall just to hang on to most of what they had. And sometimes that's what you have to do. But it also goes to show that, you know, it is possible to maintain a good um, living wage job for blue collar workers if uh, the labor power is strong enough. In the time we have left, what else are you working on and uh, where can listeners find your work? I'm going to go on book tour. Um, would love for everybody to come out and see me. I have a website, which you can find at hamiltonnolan.com, um, where I where I write a lot of stories about labor and politics and other topics. Uh, you can also find information about my book tour there. I'll be in uh, D.C., Portland, Seattle, New York, all over the place. So come, come see me. Um, and I'm always writing uh, about labor and politics still. Uh, so anybody, I encourage you to uh, buy the book. Come see me on book tour. Email me, and um, I appreciate everybody's support. Where can your articles be found? HamiltonNolan.com, which is my own publication. I'm also writing for In These Times magazine. I write for The Guardian. Um, I freelance in a lot of different places. I'm currently I'm, I'm a self-employed author now. So uh, that's the new that's the new age of journalism that we're in. I'm also on Twitter at HamiltonNolan.com. You can find a lot of my stuff there. Well, the book's excellent, and I recommend it highly to our listeners. Hamilton Nolan, author of The Hammer, Power, Inequality, and the Struggle for the Soul of Labor. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Mark. Appreciate it. Get up, stand up. Stand up for your right. Get up, stand up. Stand up for your right. Get up, stand up. Stand up for your right. Good evening. 
and welcome to another edition of Know Your Rights. This is Michael Amash with the law firm of Blake and Ulig. This month on Know Your Rights, we're going to discuss the bedrock wage and hour law in the United States, the Fair Labor Standards Act. And when discussing the Fair Labor Standards Act, what is maybe more significant than what is in it and what is not included in it. Because there are a host of things not included in the Fair Labor Standards Act that a lot of people assume are included. And those things are therefore left to potentially other federal laws and more commonly state labor laws, such as state minimum wage. While the Fair Labor Standards Act provides protections for workers in America, when compared to other wage and hour laws in other industrialized countries, the Fair Labor Standards Act protections are quite minimal. The Fair Labor Standards Act establishes minimum wage, overtime pay, record keeping, child labor standards in the private sector and in federal, state, and local governments. And as I noted earlier, especially when it comes to minimum wage, many, but not all states, alter the minimum wage and have a higher minimum wage than the federal rate. The FLSA covers non-exempt workers, so not supervisors, hourly workers, entitled to a minimum wage of $7.25 per hour. Again, many states now have higher minimum wages, but the federal wage, $7.25, and that has not been increased since 2009. Those non-exempt workers must be paid overtime pay at a rate of not less than time and one-half their regular rate of pay after 40 hours in a work week. What does the FLSA not require or provide for? Vacation, holiday pay, severance, sick pay, meal or rest periods, holidays off, vacations off, premium pay for weekend or holiday work, pay raises, or any type of fringe benefit. Further, it doesn't provide that there's a required discharge notice, a reason for discharge, or even immediate payment of final wages to a terminated employee. Further, the Fair Labor Standards Act does not limit the number of hours in a day or days in a week an employee may be required or scheduled to work, including overtime hours, so long as the employee is at least 16 years old. Now, what about tipped employees? A lot of people are used to hearing about the tipped employee exception. Tipped employees are individuals engaged in an occupation where they customarily or regularly receive $30 a month in tips or more. The employer may consider tips as part of wages, but they must pay at least $2.13 an hour in direct wages. That's right, $2.13. Now, when those tips and the $2.13 are combined, the employee under the Fair Labor Standards Act must be paid at least the federal minimum wage. So that's $7.25 an hour. So tips plus the $2.13 hourly raise rate must equal the federal minimum wage. That's it. Now, as I stated earlier, the Fair Labor Standards Act doesn't apply to what are called exempt employees. There's a number of factors that go into what is and is not an exempt employee. It is not just whether that person is salaried or not. But included within these exemptions generally are executive, administrative, professional employees, employees of certain seasonal amusement, farm workers, and many others that are exempt from federal wage and hour law. The Fair Labor Standards Act is generally enforced in two different ways. The Wage and Hour Division of the Department of Labor investigates and enforces the terms of the Fair Labor Standards Act and can bring legal action to do so. And there is also private cause of action and private remedies that employees may pursue. When an employee files a private suit to recover back wages, they can also recover an equal amount in liquidated damages, plus attorney's fees and court costs. The Wage and Hour Division of the Department of Labor may also seek those back wages, liquidated damages, as well as certain civil penalties. That is all the time we have this month on Know Your Rights. I'm Mike Amash with Blake and Ulig. Be well. Hi, and I'm Judy Ansel with the Heartland Labor Forum calendar. Uh, you can find our calendar on our Facebook page. Uh, just look for Heartland Labor Forum on Facebook. And because it's a long calendar, you're going to have to find it if you want to hear the whole thing. 
So first, finding the money. There's another side of the national to the national debt, a film to explain modern money theory. That is going to be tomorrow, Friday at 6 p.m. at UMKC at the Student Union. The Wyandotte County Third Saturday Democratic Breakfast will be Saturday, 8.15 for breakfast, 9 o'clock for the speaker at Las Islas Sports Bar, 4929 State Avenue in Kansas City, Kansas. Speakers are Senator Jeff Pittman and the Kansas Democratic Party chairperson. Heartland Alliance for Progress is hosting an in-person and Zoom meeting where volunteers will learn what to do to gather signatures to get overturning Missouri's abortion bans on the ballot. That's next Tuesday, February 20th, 5.30 to 7 p.m. on Zoom and location to be announced. You have to register to find out. You can email starwall, S-T-A-R-W-A-L, at AOL.com. Also on Tuesday at 6.30 p.m., China, Inside and Out, a discussion of China's domestic and military policy with Dr. Cynthia Watson and Bernard Cole. That's at UMKC Pearson Auditorium, 5000 Homes. And you register at a link that is part of the RUE groups. You're going to have to look it up on Facebook to find the link. Labor Notes Steward Workshop, Workshop, Dealing with Difficult Supervisors, Wednesday, February 21st, 6 to 7.30 p.m. on Zoom. Register at labornotes.org slash events and look for this workshop. And the Women's Bureau and OSHA are jointly hosting an upcoming webinar on safety at work, addressing gender-based violence and harassment in the service industry. Thursday, February 22nd, 3.30 p.m. This is online, and you can go look for the Women's Bureau events, Department of Labor Women's Bureau events. That's it for tonight's show. Uh, tune in next week. We're going to be asking, what are they cooking up this year in Jeff City? And marijuana dispensary workers organize. That's going to be a smoky event. Thanks to tonight's engineer, Stephen Hill. The Heartland Labor Forum is a member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network of over 200 radio shows and podcasts from around the U.S. and the world. Find them at laborradiopodcastnetwork.org. And stay tuned for KC Tenants People Power Hour. listening to the Heartland Labor Forum, a show by and about workers, our workplaces, and our labor movement. We are radio that talks back to the boss, and you can talk back to us too. Send us your feedback, your workplace stories, news, and ideas for shows to Heartland Labor Forum, KKFI at gmail.com. Our website, where we archive shows and post our upcoming ones, is heartlandlaborforum.org. The views expressed on this show are ours and not necessarily those of KKFI or any of the unions involved. Tune in every Thursday evening at 6 or to our rebroadcast Friday mornings at 5 right here, 90.1 FM, KKFI. We still got our because we are the working class and that's the place to be.